0: Good morning, my name is Rick Martinez, if I haven't met you, I'm one of the elders here at Capital City Church, and we are continuing this morning our study through the book of Hebrews. If you would open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, I'm going to tackle the text that Matt left for me. Don't worry, I've taught it before. No, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm actually really um, excited and blessed to, to teach this text. It is a very highly debated, controversial, and misunderstood. And so I hope to be able to bring some clarity to you and for you today. And please know that you are free to disagree with me in my uh, interpretation of it. And I would welcome uh, any dialogue with you about it. Uh, Although I'm sure I'll convince you that you're wrong when we're finished. (laughs) Hebrews 6.1. Please uh, follow along. I'll read the first 12 verses. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, And the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, those are elementary. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Father, we come to your word, as we have already said this morning, we come with humility. and We come, Lord, and say to you, be our teacher, Holy Spirit. You are the one whom has been sent to lead us into all truth and to teach us, the words of Jesus Christ that are life. We thank you for this word. We thank you for this author. We thank you for this man of God who wrote and penned these words so long ago. Father, we pray today in the 21st century as we are living now in this time that these words would have eternal impact upon our hearts. Open our eyes and open our ears that we would see and hear in our hearts that we would believe in Jesus' name. Amen The title of my teaching this morning a question is there such a thing as a unbelieving believer And I'm going to try to answer that question for you. It seems like it's a ridiculous question on the surface It's a contradiction in terms But I think we're going to find that in fact, this is what we are dealing with at some level here in this text. I want to begin by showing you two young people, a picture of one, a young man. And I'm going to call him Bart. Bart he may look familiar to you. He's like many other young men and you've probably heard of his story, it's similar to many others. Bart was raised in a Christian home and he as far as he could remember he was a Christian but he was baptized in the church when he was about 10 years or 11 years old because he said he told his parents that he had accepted Jesus. He grew up in the church. He attended youth group. He even led worship in youth group for a period of time. Went to college, led worship in his college and career uh, Christian class at a secular university. Um, Became actually very... um, Very successful as a worship leader as the years went on and Began to travel and lead worship in other places became known by people as a as a worship leader in the church of Jesus Christ he met a young woman During that time that he married and had a couple of children and became a successful Christian worship leader in the church but after a period of time in his mid-30s, after he had a marriage of 10 years or so and two children, he began to question things in his faith and wonder about some things, and the more that he thought of them and the more that he was um, confronted with other philosophies and thoughts and behaviors in the world that in which he lived and, and himself compromising at certain levels, he found himself becoming increasingly what he would have considered to be agnostic. He continued in his ministry of worship because it was lucrative financially. But by the time he was in his late 30s, his faith had pretty much deteriorated to the point where one day he finally admitted to himself and then he admitted publicly, much to the surprise and Dismay of all who knew of him that he was not a Christian. He no longer believed. In fact, he had considered himself now an atheist. What happened to Bart? Well, there are at least four different answers to that question that you will hear commonly in the church. Some would say that Bart committed apostasy that he fell away from his faith, in fact, that he lost his salvation. Others would say that he was still a Christian, but now that he was simply missing out on the blessing of God, and he would lose his reward in the next life, but they would say, once saved, always saved. He just didn't look and live as a Christian. And there are others who I would fall in this camp who would say that if Bart was genuinely a believer in his life when he was younger, he was still a believer today, but that God will not and would not allow him to remain in the state that he was in, that God as a loving father would in fact deal with him, would in fact humble him, would in fact break him, and would in fact restore him to the joy of his salvation, and back to a vibrant relationship with Christ. There's also a a young woman, and we'll call her Beth. Beth's story is a little bit different from Bart's, another familiar story. Beth was raised in a non-Christian home, in a non-Christian family, but she met a young man in college who was a strong believer, She became good friends with him. She began attending church with him. And one day after a sermon, she actually went forward and confessed faith in Christ. She began attending church on a regular basis. She was baptized. She even began to serve in the Sunday schools. She continued in college and graduated from college, and she got a very high-paying job in the city and began her her very uh, successful career. At that time in her life, she began to attend church less and less, uh, no longer had the same boyfriend that she had in college who was the believer, but now had a boyfriend who was not a believer and, in fact, then began to live with her boyfriend in the city. She continued to attend church, but less and less regularly. In fact, she would probably go maybe only on Christmas and Easter and a few times during the year, and she would go really more out of obligation and a sense of religious duty, knowing that that's what Christians are supposed to do. If you would have asked Beth, are you a Christian, Beth would have answered yes. But no one at work knew that. And probably most of her friends would not have known that either. What happened to Beth? Well, all of the three things that we said earlier of Bart could have been said and answers that probably would be answered for Beth as well. But there's a fourth answer, and I believe that's what the text in Hebrews 6 is speaking of. It's the option that this writer says, and basically it is this, that it's very possible that neither Bart nor Beth were ever truly regenerate. They had the appearance And they had actions and they had behaviors that gave an appearance. And they had experiences that go along with the appearance. But they did not have ultimately the ultimate fruit in their life, which is perseverance to the end. And as I begin, I want to say first of all, we need to remember that only God knows each heart. So we do not stand back and try to figure out and determine an individual's state of heart. Only God alone knows it. But as believers who are serious in our following of Christ, we want to encourage one another in our faith. And so it is good for us to be fruit examiners with kindness and with uh, humility with compassion, but nevertheless, as the Bible says, to speak the truth in love to one another. Before I look at the text, I want to give you a couple of definitions. I want to first by defining the word apostasy, because that is a word that is a frightening word, it is a familiar word, it is a scary word, and I want to make sure we understand what it means, lest we misinterpret it in in application especially to this text, It simply means this. It means to renounce a belief or a principle. To renounce a belief or a principle. But I also want to tell us, remind us this morning as I begin, that there is nowhere in Scripture that you will ever read or is it inferred that a person can, quote, lose their salvation. Although the word apostasy is often applied to that and in people's definition, it does, not, it does not mean that. It means simply to renounce. But the term that is used most often in Scripture to define what we would consider to be um, the process of, of renouncing is, is the word fall away or the terms fall away. They are used here in, in verse 6 of chapter 6. He says, and then have fallen away, uses the term there. It's used in chapter 3, verse 12. I'm not going to turn there. But in both of those cases, the words mean this in the Greek. It means a state of separation. Listen, this is kind of interesting. A physical distancing or a, a spiritual distancing in time. So it's being separate from... Distanced from is what that word means in chapter 6. It it can also be translated to slip aside, to deviate from the right path, to turn aside, to wander. So I want you to hear that neither of those words or interpretations speak of a permanent state. It's a state of being, but the term in Hebrews 3 and in Hebrews 6 fall away is not a permanent state. It's slipping, wandering, distancing at a time in life. Jesus used the same term in John 16. I'll read it to you. He said, I have said these things to keep you from falling away to his disciples. Here it means, the word means to be tripped up or to stumble or to be enticed to sin. Again, not a permanent state. In Galatians 5, Paul uses the same term, 5.4. He says this, speaking to the Galatian Christians, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Another Greek word interpreted with English, translated with the same words in English, but a different Greek word again. This time it means to be driven off of course, to become inefficient, of something to become of no effect. So we have for one English term, the term fall away or fallen away, these interpretations, translations, the meaning of it being a state of separation, a slipping or deviating from the right path, tripping or stumbling or being driven off course, none of them permanent. And so I will say to you today to begin, it is never spoken of one who abandons completely their faith in Christ. And there is nowhere in Scripture anywhere where we will find anything that would infer or teach that a Christian who is genuinely regenerate can lose their salvation. In fact, as we go on in Hebrews, we're going to find that the whole emphasis of the book of Hebrews from here on is exactly the opposite of the thought of a true believer denying their faith, or if I could put it in another way, of somehow the elect becoming unelect. And when I wrote the word unelect, it didn't let me write the word unelect because it doesn't exist. But you know what I mean. There is nowhere in Scripture where we will find that taught. And in fact, through the book of Hebrews, it is the superiority of the new covenant to the old. A a covenant on the old which depended upon obedience. A covenant, listen, that could be broken and was broken repeatedly. The remainder of chapter 6, if we were to continue to read on, speaks, in fact, of the certainty of God's promise. Based upon this truth, and Matt spoke of this last week, of the great high priest Melchizedek, who was of a different order than Aaron. And so from here on now, through the remainder of the book, at least till we get to chapters 12, He's going to develop this theme of the superiority of the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who was of a different order than Aaron. And the superiority of that order and, and the superiority of the covenant that this high priest now mediates is such that we as believers in Christ can live, listen, with great certainty and assurance of faith. Let me just read to you a couple of statements from the chapters that are following regarding this certainty. In chapter 7, verse 18, he says, we have a better hope. And then in verse 22 of chapter 7, he says, we have a better covenant. Look, turn with me to chapter 7, just to the next chapter. Look at verse 25. We'll read a few of them together. Have you turned to them? Hebrews 7, 25. Listen to his language. We're talking about understanding what he's speaking of in Hebrews 6, not misunderstanding what he's talking of, applying it to a believer, somehow losing their salvation, somehow not ever really knowing if they're secure, if they are a true believer. Look what he says in Hebrews 7, verse 25. But as, excuse me, he says, He is able, therefore... To, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. To save to the uttermost. In chapter 8, the next chapter in verse 6, he says this, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent then the old as the covenant he mediators mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises and then he quotes Jeremiah 31:31 31, 31, the prophecy of the new covenant of a new heart of the law written on the heart better promises and then in chapter 9 In verse 11, he makes this powerful statement. If you want to turn there and read it with me. And I love this. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things, listen, that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, by means of his own blood, listen, listen, thus securing an eternal redemption. The certainty, the certainty of this salvation is the theme of this book of Hebrews because of this great high priest. And then finally in verse chapter 10, we've read 7, 8, 9, 10. Now chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. Turn there, please. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. There is no question to the writer of the Hebrews that God is able to keep those who are his own and that he will keep those that are his own. So what is he talking about in Hebrews 6? I want to remind us to begin with, The context in which he was writing, and Matt has spoken of this, that these Hebrew believers were undergoing great persecution. It was harder than a COVID and a smoky day. They were losing their homes. They were being persecuted viciously and violently. They were wavering. They were slipping. They were drifting. They were stumbling. They were wandering. There was separation in their hearts. I want to say, I think one of the things that is happening right now in our own world, in our own context, in our 21st century California today, September 13th, is that God is dealing with his church. in mercy and in grace and in compassion. He is dealing with his church. He is separating the dross from that which is genuine. He's preparing us for the future that could be even more challenging. He's teaching us how to pray. He's teaching us how to how to find peace in the midst of storms of life. He's teaching us to trust him. He's teaching us to remain and to endure under tribulation. He's doing many things in the church. He's dealing with attitudes, with loves, This church that the Hebrew writer is writing to is consists of Jewish believers, people who were saved out of Judaism. They're struggling greatly. And they're wandering. And so through the book, he warns them. And this is one of the most serious warnings of all. This and one we'll find in chapter 10. Where he warns them of the great danger. If in fact... They confess Christ. It must be borne out through endurance. So it's clear that in this text, the subject is not not one of a regenerate believer denying Christ or of losing our salvation due to sin or rebellion. So it must be speaking of something else. We see a heart that is described, if you go back to chapter 6 with me in verses 4 through 6, A heart is described, and then the fruit of that heart is illustrated in verses 7 through 8. Let's look at verses 4 through 6 again. This heart he describes is this. He says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to be restored again to repentance. And then he describes the fruit of that heart in verse 7 and 8. He says, it is like land or ground that has drunk the rain that falls on it, and it produces a crop that is useful for those whose sake it is cultivated and receives a blessing from God. But it also could be a heart that bears thorn and thistles and is worthless in near to be being Cursed. So he says there's at least two grounds, two, two, two lands, two heart states here that could be true of this person in Hebrews 6. But Jesus said there's actually four hearts in the parable of the sower. One we know that the, the word falls on it and it bears good fruit. It's like this first soil that is ascribed here in verse 7 because it is a heart that is soft and genuinely open to the Word of God. But Jesus also spoke of a heart that was shallow, where the seed would fall on it and it would not even have opportunity to bear fruit. In fact, it would be taken away by birds before it could even begin. And then there was a soil that it would go in but it would only go so far. When I lived up in Placerville, we had a house that we built, and it was on clay. I mean, you could dig down three inches, and then you'd hit hard pan clay. To plant anything in that was brutal. That's what this heart is like, that Jesus described. It'll go in, but it only goes so far, and it can't go deep enough to where it will ever endure. It's kind of like what maybe... Beth was like. And then there's the heart that he said was like it would go in and it would actually begin to grow. And it looked like it was good fruit coming from it. But suddenly the care of the world and the worries of the world and the love of the world, maybe like what Bart experienced, would come and choke it out and it would not bear fruit. I want you to note in verse 9 that the writer wants to encourage them, and he acknowledges them and calls them beloved in verse 9 because he's convinced of better things for them than this. I thought that was interesting as I was praying about it. I thought, so he was really concerned. But he was confident for them that there were better things for them than even what it appeared to be right now. He had faith for them. He had hope for them. And the reason he was sure, he says, is because he's confident they will become imitators of others who have gone on before them. And they who through faith and patience inherited the promises, so would they who followed through faith and patience inherit the promises. When we taught through the book of Revelation, the one thing that we read again and again and again and again and again was Jesus' words saying, him who endures, he who endures, he who perseveres to the end, he who endures. And see, the thing about a believing life is not so much that we prove it through being persevering, but that perseverance continuing proves that it is genuine. We're not trying to prove it by trying to persevere, but the fact that we do persevere proves that it is genuine because we persevere by the grace of God. And the writer is confident for them that that in fact is what will be said to be true of them. Persevering and producing faith proves that you became a partaker of Christ in the past. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, it's a process of proving our faith because we continue in it. It's also interesting to me that in this verses 4 through 6 of this chapter, he never uses language that is commonly spoken of, of a believer. He doesn't speak of conversion. He doesn't use the word justified. He doesn't use the word adoption. He doesn't use the word elect. He doesn't use the word sanctification. He doesn't use the word regeneration. None of those words are used in verses 4, 5, and 6. He's describing some other experience. But lest we just argue from silence, let's look at the scripture, especially from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and ask ourselves, what does the book of Hebrews say then about those who are truly regenerate? I've got an overhead for this, a keynote for this, if you put it up. First is this, what does the book of Hebrews say about those who are truly regenerate? God has forgiven their sin. God has cleansed their conscience. And there is scripture for each of those. God has written his law on their hearts. God is producing holiness in them. God has given them an unshakable kingdom. God is pleased with them. They have faith in God. They have hope. They worship and pray. They obey God. They persevere. They rest in God. They know God. They are God's house, God's children, God's people. They share in Christ. These are all spoken of as true believers, of of the fruit of of salvation in the life of a believer. So what are these terms in verses 4 through 6 describing about someone, and of whom is he speaking? It's someone who appears to be a genuine Christian, but in fact was never truly regenerate. And let's look at what he says of them. And I want you to think of this in the context of the false gospels that are out there today. Because part of the reason that this is even possible is because of the, bo- the gospel not being preached as it truly is. so we have false, quote-unquote, conversions. And we have easy acceptance of Christ. And there's never truly been regeneration by the Spirit of God. What is he describing? Let's look at these one by one quickly. He says, first of all, they have once been enlightened. Interesting language. What does he mean by that? So many people today have grown up in the church and have heard the gospel repeatedly. They went to Christian school. They heard it at chapel on Fridays. They heard it again and again and again and again. They have been enlightened. They understand it. They could tell you what the gospel is. But they have never embraced it with their whole heart. It is possible to be enlightened and to deny, to reject Christ. Merely understanding truth is not enough for salvation. And I think it is safe to say that all true Christians have been enlightened, but not all who have been enlightened are true Christians. So many hear the truth or at least what is a semblance of the truth and even possibly in this room have heard it for years and years and years but have never yielded fully their lives to Christ. He goes on and he says they've tasted the heavenly gift. Interesting. He says they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. And they've tasted the goodness of the word of God and even the powers of the age to come. And I read that and I thought, that sure sounds like a Christian to me. Is it possible to experience all of these things and not truly be born again? And the answer is yes. Someone who is in the the church on a a regular, -regular, semi-regular basis and experiences the blessing of God is in the presence of of the Lord. During worship. Experiences, ministries, prayed for. May have even been delivered. May have been healed. It's interesting in the the Gospels, not everyone whom Jesus healed believed. Many did, not all did. I think this is one of the dangers of the emotional, subjective Christianity that is so popular today in our culture, especially among the youth. An emphasis on feeling and on emotion. And on on music that is simply to move your emotions and your senses. But a truncated gospel that accompanies it and people growing up in that context believing that because they feel something that means they are they are a christian when it does not mean that at all and the writer to the hebrews is warning of that very thing That you could sit in a church week after week after week and sense the blessing of God, the common grace of God, if you would, upon people because you are in the midst of the people of God and yet yourself never ever have your heart swayed to deny self and to believe in Christ. It happened to Judas. They may have even had a sorrow for sin, but not a sorrow that leads to salvation and to life. Judas had a sorrow, but it was without true repentance. Esau experienced sorrow, but it did not lead to life. Sorrow for sin does not necessarily lead to life. Only repentance turning from it does. Paul speaks in his writings of a a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but he also speaks of a worldly grief that produces death. And again, this this moralism, this, this moralistic therapeutic deism that is preached from so many churches' pulpits, that is a, a gospel of self-help and a gospel of self-improvement can be deceptive, can deceive the hearts of those hearing it. To believe that if they, if they do the right things and, and then they, they have a sense of, of shame and guilt when they do the wrong thing, that that must mean that they are a Christian without ever turning fully to Christ. Or a gospel that preaches prosperity. That God's blessing is equated with with prosperity. And to have prosperity in their lives, but never to truly have been regenerate. Because the gospel they heard was not the true gospel. It is only the cross of Christ that can give life. It is only faith in Christ's redemptive work upon the cross that can give a man or a woman or a young man or a young woman true life. Church, coming to church, does not give life. In fact, listen, listen, listen. It can inoculate you from the truth if your heart is not soft. And that's the warning of Hebrews 6. What does it mean for us today? How can we possibly apply this to our our own uh, church and our own lives today? I want to begin by saying that I am not afraid that any of us who are in this room today who are truly believers, born again, regenerate by the Spirit of God, will ever fall away from Christ. I believe you are secure. You may not look like it all the time. You may not act like it all the time and you may not feel like it all the time, but you are. Look at look at the book of Jude. Let's you guys know the last two verses of Jude. You should have it memorized. We used to sing this as a song when I first got saved. This beautiful doxology, Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from, here it is, stumbling, from drifting away, from falling away, from wandering away, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our great high priest, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And we all say amen unto him who is able to keep you and to keep me. So I'm not afraid for you. But I want to say that we must examine ourselves, as Paul encourages us in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, to be certain that we are in the faith. I want to say this especially for those of you who struggle with habitual sin. We all struggle with sin. Even the mature can struggle with habitual sin to some degree. But we should not continue in sin unrepentant. Or at least without deep conviction and a deep sorrow and a deep yearning for freedom. Examine yourself. Don't beat yourself up and don't navel-gaze. We know our hearts. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to be very vulnerable with you. I pray this on a regular basis. Father, may my faith be found to be proven to be genuine. Because I struggle at times, and I don't feel the way I want to feel about myself before God or if I get discouraged, or if I'm struggling with an area of my life that I just can't quite seem to find a victory in, I say, Father, may my faith be found to be genuine. I, I love you. I do. I believe in you. I don't want to be self-deceived. Is there fruit in my life? If Is there unrepentant? Habitual sin if there is confess it and ask for forgiveness and by the grace of God turn from it But I want to appeal especially to those of us those of you Because I'm not in this camp Who have grown comfortable with the familiarity of your Christian faith? But yet you've kept the Lord at arm's length You might have grown up in the church. You might have been born into a Christian family You might be doing all of the right things today. You tasted of the goodness of God when you took communion today. That's part of what that means. You've experienced the blessing of being in God's house. But you have never turned yourself and your heart fully to God. And if you were really, really honest Honest with yourself, you would have you would admit, My heart is not close to God. I have drifted, I'm wandering, I don't care that much. That's who I'm concerned for. That's who this writer in Hebrews 6 was concerned for. What is the answer? The answer is to put our faith in Christ alone. In Christ alone my hope is found. He alone, he is my he is the, my rock and my strength, my cornerstone. And we are living in a in a season in American history when the church is I think filled with false conversions. Many. And I think the youth are especially vulnerable. Especially vulnerable for a number of reasons. Because either they're not hearing the gospel, or they have heard it so much that that it just goes in one ear and out the other. Or now they're going to go to college, or they're going to go away, and they're going to be exposed to ridicule and to philosophies of men, and they're going to have their faith challenged what they believe is faith, and it will not stand up to it. And that is whom this writer is concerned for. But he's going to go on in this book and he's going to teach us and encourage us and assure us of the certainty of the redemptive work of Christ and this new covenant that we are participants in by faith. In God alone. Stand with me if you would. There is no shame and no guilt. But there is sobriety. And if ever we were living in a time when the Spirit of God is saying, Be sober, my people, it is now. Be ye sober. Be brutally honest, brutally honest before God. He who knows your heart anyway. We must know our hearts. Be honest before God. Don't be afraid to be completely honest with him. And I say, pray for people that you love, that you know, who these terms describe. People in your home, and people in your family, people that are friends, who you know, who if you ask them if they believe, they would say, yes, I believe, but there is no sense of fruit of it in their life. Or maybe even they're enough to, honest enough to say, I don't know if I even believe anymore. Let's pray for them. Because if, in fact, they are not true believers, God is able. Amen? And if they are, and they've wandered away, he is able to restore them, regardless of what it looks like they're doing right now. But only he really knows. But maybe when you ask them and you talk to them, encourage them to be really honest because that's where freedom will will be found is in their own honesty before God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for this difficult text that is not an easy one even to read at times. Lord, we know that it is merciful and it is graciously written. And it was written initially out of love, out of a deep concern for those to whom he was writing. Lord, it was not a sealing their fate. It was not a a judgment upon them. It was simply an appeal to turn again to the grace of God, maybe for the first time, and to be restored to relationship with God. I pray today for those that are among us. I pray for the youth among us. I pray for those of us that have walked with God for many years, that we would be very honest before you and honest with our own hearts. We pray for genuine conversion, genuine salvation, genuine redemption, Lord, the fruit of it to be born. We pray that even today there would be salvation in Jesus' name, that hearts would turn. I want to say to you, if you are today, you are here, and you might in even today sense this is in fact who I am. In the name of the Lord right now, I appeal to you. Turn your heart to God. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Confess that that's where you are and believe upon him. And he will save you. And he will free you and he will forgive you. And he will fill you with his spirit. And he will put a hunger for him in you. And he will put a hunger for his word in your heart. And he will put great joy in your heart that will become so real and so true to you that you will never again wander away. Father, be glorified in in your church in our day. Be glorified in this people, Lord. Let us be a fervent people. Let us be a people that are deeply in love with you, a people that are on fire for Christ in this day. Deal with compromise. Deal with this, this, this sense of just boredom. Deal, Lord, with discouragement in Jesus' name, even today. Lift it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Lift this laissez-faire attitude towards our faith away and off of us in Jesus' name. Let us burn with a passion for Christ. May we so love you that those who encounter us would know that we are a child of God. May the people that we work with know that we are a child of God, not because we preach at them, but because we live our life in such a way that it testifies. May we be fearless to speak the truth when opportunity arises itself. May we not be ashamed of you and not ashamed of the gospel and not ashamed of our faith. In this day, oh God, awaken your church, breathe on her again. We thank you, Father. We love you. We honor you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.